Uh, anyway, so we've seen how this early church in the book of Acts is going about uh, things. And Jason, uh, two weeks ago, nailed it when he talked about uh, this early church and applying the gospel to tribalism. If you weren't uh, a part of that a few Sundays ago or two Sundays ago, you'll want to go back and listen to that online. All the sermons are there. Great job on that. Uh, but you, what I want to look at today is the correlation or connection between uh, Stephen, uh, who was the first martyr in the New Testament, uh, and how it applies to us and how it should influence us today and the hows, wins, and wheres of us following Jesus. And so, uh, Stephen, it, if you remember, at the, in the first part of six that Jason was talking about was one of the first of, the, of seven deacons that they appointed, Stephen. Uh, and it told us a little bit about him. He said, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip. And remember, he said five other hard word names that he didn't even try to pronounce. And so that's it. Seven guys. Uh, and, and Stephen was, was uh, signified as full of God's grace, power, and full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And he was performing signs and wonders, and there was people flocking to him from everywhere to hear what he was teaching, to see what he was doing. And it really wasn't what he, what he did, but those he was doing it for. And it really wasn't what he said, but the power and authority that he had to say it. And honestly, it wasn't really Stephen. It was the Holy Spirit that was alive in Stephen, acting and speaking and doing things through him. So, uh, but something that he was saying was rubbing the powers that be in that day uh, the wrong way. So he was talking about things such as the land, he was talking about the law, and he was talking about the Lord and the presence of the Lord. And really continuing, uh, what, what he did was just kind of continue on with what Jesus was doing uh, and continuing to blur the lines between law and grace and bet- between heaven and earth and between secular and sacred uh, and between this kingdom now and the kingdom not yet. Uh, just as we've seen Christ do... Uh, in our year and a half journey through Matthew, uh, this, this wasn't really easy for people to grasp, especially those who were schooled in the law and Jews. Uh, and he, he's, we're going to see, as he points out in his sermon, uh, the Israelites have lived a long time under the law and in this age of grace, which we now live in as well, but it was, at the, at the time, was brand new. So... Like Jesus, uh, the leaders of the day didn't really know how to handle him. Uh, so they, had, they tried to argue with him and debate with him. And it says in the scripture that they couldn't stand up to his wisdom and his spirit. So they seized him, they tried him, and ultimately they killed Stephen. Because they couldn't surrender uh, or couldn't reconcile this, this, this old law with Jesus and the gospel. The one who the prophets had prophesied about. So before you guys... Uh, Hey man, go okay. There's no scripture on the on the PowerPoint. We're not, we're going to talk about chapter seven, and I'm going to ra- reference this Acts chapter seven. We're going to actually reference six as well, uh, but it's it's so long. Uh, I'm just going to kind of give a brief recap of what it says there. But I would encourage, highly encourage you to read that because not only is it the longest sermon in the book of Acts, but I would say it's probably the most powerful uh, sermon in the book of Acts as well. So. Uh, as we look at the story, I want to figure out for each of us uh, who we identify with. Whether we're going to identify with Stephen, whether we identify possibly with the false accusers, or possibly even the leaders or the Sanhedrin, those who knew the law, followed the law, uh, and were subject to the law. So, um, like I said, we're just going to 
we're going to kind of spitball this, but uh, Stephen was seized, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they produced false witnesses against him. Where have we seen that same thing played out? Where have we seen that? I can't hear you over the fan. Oh, yeah. Jesus was the same, brought before the same uh, group, uh, was, was given a trial of sorts, right? They produced false witnesses of, of sorts, and then they uh, executed him. Um, and really what we're going to see here is, is Jesus is back on trial through the life of Stephen. The false witnesses said that we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Uh, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So he's talking against the two biggies for them was the law and the temple. One, one other verse in there says, you'll, says this, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw his face was like the face of an angel. So there are these guys that are trying Stephen. They're, they're, they're producing false witnesses and Stephen is just looking, has this look, this glow about him. We've also seen that somewhere. Where, where does that occur? Someone's glow like the face of an angel? Anyone? Yeah. And when Moses comes down from the mountain after he's had his chat with God, his face was glowing uh, like the face of an angel. So there was something special about this guy, and even the religious elite and the, elite and the judges noticed that. Noticed this. So in seven, the high priest poses this question to Stephen. It kicks it all, kicks it all off. He says, "Are these charges true? Are these charges that the false witnesses are that they're saying against you? Are they true?" And then he launches into this long sermon. Again, I want you to read that. But here's what here's basically what it said. It was filled with history. It was filled with facts. That the, Jewish, that the Jewish leaders knew to be true. Uh, but here was the catch. Every piece of history made reference to uh, the failures of the nation of Israel. Every time, uh, well, I'll, we'll go into that in a second. But as the elders uh, listen to this, they're hearing about the story of Abraham in verses 2 through 8. They're hearing about Joseph uh, in 9 through 16, the story of Moses in 17 through 43, and, the, and then Solomon's temple in verse 45 through 50. So it's a long chapter, but it's broken up into those four pretty distinct uh, verses. But in his speech, Stephen reminds them of, their, of the faithful patriarch Abraham and how God had led him from a pagan land into the land of Israel, where he made a covenant with him that's still in effect to that day. And he spoke of the journey of his people through Joseph's sojourn in Egypt and their deliverance by Moses 400 years later. And he brought to mind how Moses had, let, had met God in the wilderness in a burning bush. And he explained how God had empowered Moses to lead his people from idolatry and slavery to freedom and times of refreshing in the promised land. And so I'm sure as they're hearing this from Stephen, they're becoming incensed. They're probably irate uh, and just, you know, probably wondering who is this guy to tell us about our history? Who is this guy that speaks of such things to us? Who is this that can call into question uh, the forefathers and, and, and even question uh, about their idolatry, rebellion, and ultimately our rejection of the prophets and the law. And accusing them with their own history. He accused them with their own history, which really enraged them. And because of this in the next passage, but we're not going to go into this yet, he was stoned and killed. But what does this mean for us today? Uh, as we see Stephen blur these lines between the secular and the sacred, 
what were the charges against him and what should they be against us as followers of Jesus? You know, uh, through the life of Jesus, uh, we continually saw him among the tax collectors and sinners, uh, with the prostitutes and the unclean, and as a friend and an advocate to the outsiders and the outcasts. Excuse me. And as a simple servant, um, Stephen is recreating this in his life. This is, this is how he's serving uh, Christ uh, and, and being among the people and being among sinners and telling them about the good news and the gospel of Jesus. And the problem was, was when he started questioning the law, when he started questioning the temple, uh, Stephen raised questions about the very dwelling place of God. Uh, and as, as, as we will come to find out, or we, we know that our bodies are the temple of God. That Jesus said, I am the temple, and I will tear down the temple, and in three days later be raised up again. And we know this, too, that God cannot be confined to a place, to a circumstance, to a certain set of beliefs or doctrines. And he's not where we place him. He cannot be contained. So, uh, just a quick question. How many of you guys were saved at youth camp? Anybody? Hands? Anybody saved at youth camp? Nobody? Okay. A couple? Three, four, five? Okay. So, uh, that's not a bad thing. I mean, that's a good thing. That's where we're sending a group off to Glorietta here in a few weeks. Maybe, maybe some of them will, will come to know Christ. Uh, but at church camp, there's this prescription. I don't know if you guys know about this, but uh, after having witnessed this for about 10 or so years in youth ministry, I've seen it and can recognize it, and I go, okay, this is this night. And so, I'll just do it in a week. Monday is usually an adoration night, okay? Basically acknowledging that God is God, okay? Tuesday night is acknowledging sin. Wednesday night is an invitation into relationship with God. Thursday night is always cry night. I don't know why, but there's always cry night. And Friday night is an empowerment. Go home. Don't backslide. You guys can win everyone, one of your friends for the kingdom. That's what Friday night is. So that's pretty much how youth camp goes every year. And it's great. I mean, kids get saved. It's an awesome time. But is church camp the only place that God can save kids? No. I mean, we know that. We, don't, we know that God doesn't only work in, in church camp. And um, if Don Taylor was here, which he's not, I don't see him. I mean, he could tell you that God is alive and well in the country of Haiti. That's where he came to know Jesus for the very first time in a very real, personal way. And he went with a, with a trip to help one now down there several years ago. And he said after, he sat me down afterwards and said, after 40 years of church, uh, being in and serving in the Methodist church, I came to know Jesus in a real personal way in Haiti for the very first time. And so I know uh, God is alive and well in foreign lands. And like Stephen was pointing out, God can come to us in those places through different people, through a burning bush, if he so chooses. Yet we prop up certain forms, and these, these guys were propping, propping up certain forms. And uh, we, we like to build boxes that we put God in. We like to build boxes with our own hearts, with our minds, we, we will build those uh, because somehow that gives us comfort. That makes uh, the story uh, more, uh, the narrative easier for us to explain if we can somehow contain God to that box. But maybe, maybe there's just something about God uh, and the motives of God and the workings of God uh, that can't be controlled or understood. They can't be controlled or understood. They're to be pursued but I would say if there's something that can be controlled or understood, then it's not God. Yeah, we have this, uh, we have this temple that Jesus said he could restore, destroy and rebuild in three days. 
speaking of himself. And he was the embodiment of God incarnate uh, to us as a people. But religious people get their joy and fulfillment from uh, what they do and what they achieve by their own hands. And many times these things become our idols, right? Right? I would say to the, to the Jewish nation, Solomon's temple had become an idol. Um, possibly the law. And many times these things, works of our own, own hands become idols and things that we worship and not God. We see in Stephen's sermon in verse 41, referring to the Israelites as they were being led by Moses and then again by, and then by Aaron out of Egypt to the promised land. At some point in those 40 years, uh, they built a golden calf. Do you remember the story? Uh, and he said that was the time that they made an idol in the form of a calf and they brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. You see, the Israelites had been freed from slavery by God and yet they grew weary of honoring and worshiping this God uh, that they couldn't see and possibly hadn't heard from in a while and instead chose to worship something that they created, much like when we, you know, when they later built the temple. As we've seen in Jesus and now Stephen blur these lines between the temple being a structure, something built by human hands or an idol, uh, versus Jesus being the new temple or our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's very own workmanship, us being the temple. We see Jesus caught telling the Samaritan woman at the well, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem. Nor in the, not on the mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now that was, that's something kind of unheard of because that's where you went to worship. And here in Stephen's sermon, he quotes Isaiah saying, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, the prophet said. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Oh, where is my resting place? Has not my hand made all these things? So Stephen is basically saying here that there is no more sacred place than where God is present. That there's no time set apart from God. There's no circumstance that he can't be in. He's telling these, these elders and, and judges that your ancestors worshiped God in foreign lands, on, on, in, in strange circumstances, on foreign soil. And it doesn't have to be in the temple. As we try to grasp the implications for us today, what boxes are we putting God in? See, the problem that I've alluded to earlier, where these lines are blurred, is that we must tear down many of the walls that we've built. Many of the things that we have propped up as truth or the way, and, we've, and they simply become idols to us. Like, what is the best form of church? There's a ton of different forms of church. This is the way we do church. I wouldn't say this is the best way to do church. It's just how we choose to do it. Where is the church? Is it only in the building? What is the church? Is it the people? Who is in? Who is out? That's a big, big one. What is sacred and what is secular? What is heavenly and what is earthly? Examples. So this time for me, this time in here, this, this time of worship, this is a sacred time. But when I leave here and get in my car and I drive away, that's then secular somehow. Or this relationship that I have with this person, this is a secular relationship versus this is a sacred relationship. This conversation that I'm having with this person, this is a secular conversation versus a sacred conversation. 
that I'm having. And at some point I may have a sacred conversation with them, but for right now it's just secular. This cafeteria, this cafeteria is sacred on Sunday mornings, but on Monday to Friday, it's not sacred. The meal that I have with my neighbor is not sacred. It's just a meal. But if we're going to take our cues from Stephen, all times, all places, all conversations, all meals are sacred. And I'm going to take a quick second to plug something. Uh, if you got my email last week, uh, you saw where Hugh Halter's coming to teach us uh, June 19th, which is Father's Day. Guys, I urge you to be here. He's a good friend of ours. Love the way he teaches. Love what he brings. But he's going to be teaching us about the holy sacrament of eating and drinking. And so basically talking about this very thing. But if we continue to rank uh, uh, and place people according to who's in and who's out, who are God's chosen, who are not, where is God present, where isn't he present, we're no better than the very people who took Stephen out and stoned him. Any conversation we have with a neighbor may be ordained to be holy. Any dinner with our kids may be a moment where we get to share our faith with them. Any problem at work might be an opportunity to lead and show others how a follower of Jesus responds in that moment. Any out-of-town work trip could be a sacred moment, could be a sacred trip. Being unjustly accused, and the list goes on. Um, But it's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of our perspective. Are we willing to surrender every moment, as Stephen did, to be holy? Are we willing to surrender every relationship as sacred? Are we willing to put all of our efforts, all of our works, all of our finances into the, into the hands of the God who provides them to us anyway? As a follower of Jesus, we should, be, we should strive to be more like Stephen, who was trying to be more like Christ. The problem with this for us is that for those of us that grew up in the church, we've been taught not only the scriptures, uh, but many of our pastors, willingly or not, have, have, have their own bent, if you will, their own yoke, uh, as they were referred to as to rabbis of old. So like the teachers and rabbis in Jesus' day, a lot of well-meaning pastors and teachers who love Jesus with all their hearts and who've given their lives to his service of the kingdom have a yoke. And though it's never intended to be, many of them have learned and passed these on to us. Uh, and, 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 and presented this gospel that's laced with law. Things like, you can do this, but you can't do that. Any, anybody grow up in the Baptist church? Anybody? Raise your hands high. Come on. I know you, most of you are Baptists because you weren't dancing earlier. <laughs> I know that's the fact. Uh, you can do this. You can't do that. You can't dance. Remember, you can't, if you're old enough, you can't even play cards, right? Because devil, devil was in the cards. Uh, these people, these folks are in. These folks are out. These people are bad. These people are good. This is the way that church it was intended to be. That other style of church, that other denomination of church, they've got it all wrong, right? You can be friends with the people at church, but you shouldn't be friends with people outside. Don't, don't help these people. They'll just take advantage of you. You, can vote Demo- you can't vote Democrat because they kill babies. Is that not true? You see that on Facebook. But you can't vote Republican because, well, Trump, right? Um, so it's really hard to incorporate uh, the gospel 
this good news, good news of Jesus in this age of grace while standing halfway in and halfway out of the law. Any law, any yoke can become oppressive if, appri- if applied incorrectly. And as we follow this Jesus guy who came full of grace and truth, we need to remember one thing. When we think we need to apply more truth, or in this case the law, lead with love and extend grace. Extend grace like it was extended to you before you believed. Because we were all told this, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. You know, we wrap up Stephen's sermon, and we must read the words to the Sanhedrin, this group of judges and rulers over Israel. And we do have those words, right? Let's go ahead and read that together. It'll be on the screen. He said this, you stiff-necked people. Now, he's told them all their history. He's given them, talked about the law. He's talked about the land, and he's talked about the presence of the Lord. And he's, and he's brought accusation against them with their own, with their own uh, history. And then he reads this, or then he says this to them. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. And with that, they killed him. Uh, and we'll talk about that next week. You see, they, they, they fail to see how, how Jesus in this gospel connects to the Old Testament, to the law that they've, been, that they've been handed down. And through their history, all these prophets have always pointed to Jesus and they've missed it. The lines that were blurred by Jesus and now being blurred by Stephen, they did this on purpose. And that's good news to me because we can worship and experience God in our everyday conversations, in all our relationships we have, in all the meals that we partake with neighbors, in the love and grace that we extend to the outsiders and to the outcast, and in a situation at work that seems uh, mundane or seems arbitrary. We can worship in that moment. And we can worship in this cafeteria in the south part of Austin. Uh, Everyday experiences become discipleship experiences when we have the right attitude and the perspective. Like those in the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the educated Jews, the stories that we are living for is simply incorrect without Jesus. Simply incorrect. If we follow the law if we cross our T's and dot our I's, if we are good people, if we're serving people, if we're loving people, and we do it without Jesus, we're, 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 we're doing it incorrect. You're doing it wrong. There's no place, no time, no circumstance more sacred than the next. And as Jesus followers, we should look for the sacred moments in all of them. And like Stephen, I'll pray that we are full of God's grace and power, full of faith in the Holy Spirit as we continue to pursue and experience this God who cannot be contained to a box. So let's, let's pray and then we'll have communion together.